Blue Heron Reserve. Interesting. Someone else. Underwater. <laughs> that works. Cool. Someone else. Quietest place you like being. Haha, <laughs> in bed. In bed. For some of us, it's close to home. For others of us, it's away from home. It kind of depends on your situation, doesn't it? I know that uh, for those of you that enjoy camping, uh, those are often quiet times, uh, away from other noises that you're familiar with. And so we all have those special moments where we just need a bit of quiet. We just need to get away. We just need things to be different than what's normally going on. We need to remove ourselves from whatever it is that reminds us of all the stuff and all the worries and all the circumstances of our regular life and we disappear into the silence of a soul-soothing experience. Those are cool moments. Philip Brooks is an interesting character. He's born in South Boston, December the 13th, 1835. He was the second of six sons, four of which went into ministry. It's not uncommon to have your children go into ministry back in those days. Four out of six was pretty extraordinary. His parents were prominent Boston citizens, and so he didn't have a tough upbringing, but he was a child who liked solitude. If I was to quote a carol, I would say that he didn't get to play with all the other reindeer. He was a very contemplative young man, and he liked being by himself. At 16, he entered Harvard and got into languages. He very much enjoyed the, the personal study of languages, and on graduation, he accepted a post at Boston Latin School, which was an institution that he himself had attended. However, Jim, Sandy, Kim, what do you think was his worst downfall as a teacher? Classroom management. <laughs> he only lasted six months because he couldn't handle the teenagers. They drove him nuts and he had no idea how to be an effective teacher in those kind of situations. By the way, are you surprised that there were rowdy teenagers <laughs> over a hundred years ago? Isn't that amazing? So he quit. After six months, said, this isn't for me. Frustrated, he began 
thinking about what he could do with his life work. He entered Episcopal training for ministry, ordained a deacon in 1859, and then his first assignment was to the Church of the Advent in Philadelphia. He had immediate success. He's a preacher who spoke very passionately, and large crowds began to form. He very much came alive on the platform. Very shy, introverted man, among others. But when he climbed into the platform, something took over, and the care that he took in oratory and writing out his sermons really helped the audience to feel like he was preaching to them personally and that he cared. And so his audiences began to swell. He was a staunch defender of the Union during the Civil War, and when Lincoln was assassinated in 1865, it was actually Philip Brooks who gave the eulogy at Lincoln's Philadelphia funeral service. And there he talked about the fact that Lincoln vindicated the greatness of real goodness and vindicated the goodness of real greatness. That was his talk that day. A great disaster struck his congregation in 1872. Their church burned down. However, Brooks used it as a catalyst to build an even more impressive sanctuary. That is what you would see today. In fact, it's listed as one of the 10 most significant church landmarks in the United States. And if you get a chance to go to Boston, it is well worth your while to go see this church. The skyscrapers that are all around and dwarf this building, which is magnificent in itself, but, you know, there are skyscrapers 100 stories high all around, so there it sits in this little enclave. But it's a magnificent building. And he and others rented Huntington Hall while they spent five years building that sanctuary. So this is Trinity Church in Copley Square. Congregations continue to grow. He was highly regarded as a pastor and a preacher, but critics said that he preached easy religion to people who were too wealthy. <laughs> that was the knock against him. And yet, in spite of the criticisms, he continued to preach, continued to draw crowds, and he avoided the sort of dry, cerebral intellectualism of Unitarianism at that time, and he also wasn't the legalist and dogmatist of the Congregationalists that were also around. So there was something about him that really appealed to people because he seemed to really be speaking to them. He was at their level. It was vibrant and heartfelt, and he was referred to as a prince of the pulpit in those days. But on his own... He had a lot of difficulty. A quiet man with a lot of time for thought, never got married, never had a family of his own, did a lot of visitation, did a lot of preaching. And it was his nature at times to get caught up in his own problems, 
especially the fact that he would preach the victory of the cross and yet felt so heavy at times regarding the burden of his own inadequacy. He spent a lot of time wishing he was different, more courageous, more outspoken, more congenial, more friendly, more at ease in a crowd of people. He says he was happiest when he sat alone by his desk in his office and got to study. The moment there were people, meetings, affairs, parties, places where he had to attend, make an appearance, oh man, he was uncomfortable. And it really ate at him, really ate at him that he wasn't different. I'm going to give you a sense of the man this way. It's an excerpt from some things that he wrote. Men tell us this and that about Jesus, this and that subtle thought about the mystery of his nature, this and that profound theory of the work by which he makes himself our redeeming king. We do not doubt. We do not deny. It is as if when we were turning with full heart aching for sympathy to find our deepest friend, that someone would stop us and tell us deep things about the philosophy of friendship. We do not doubt. We do not deny it may be true. No doubt it is true. But all is overswept and drowned for a time by the blind, eager, passionate longing of the heart that needs Christ to get to him. Men tell us why we need him. We cannot listen, but our heart is full of one consciousness. Where shall we find him? So you, you get a real good sense of, of him constantly saying, I believe, I don't doubt. All these great truths are, are true. They're important. They're vital. But, but oh man, I'm, I'm just constantly always longing to sense Christ's gratitude and forgiveness and love for me. I, I need to experience that. Another time he writes, righteousness is at the bottom of all things. Righteousness is thorough. It is the very spirit of unsparing truth. Any reform or salvation of which the power is righteousness must go down to the very root of the trouble, must extensuate and cover over nothing, must expose and convict completely in order that it may completely heal. As this is the power of the salvation of Christ, it makes no compromise between the good and the evil, between Judah and Edom. Edom must be destroyed, not parleyed with. Sin must be beaten down and not conciliated. Good must thrive by the defeat and not merely by the tolerance of evil. Out of that again, a man who over and over again wakes up and says to himself, I wish it were better. I wish it were better. I wish I knew that I was making more of a difference. I, I wish that there was a settledness and a peace that came to me about my own sin. I wish that I only had to pray once 
and be forgiven, not numerous times over and over and over again in order to sense the peace of God. I just want evil to be done with. I want it to be over. Not only was Brooks effective from the pulpit, but he maintained a great literary influence, published lots of books and sermons, even preached in the chapel in Windsor in front of the Queen. So there were a lot of highlights of his life. There was a lot going on, and he was a man who enjoyed preaching. But in 1862, it all started to get to him. Day after day, he woke up just feeling ill at ease. Couldn't put his finger on it. Just nothing was right. He started to feel desperate and, and anxious. He ended up having long bouts of depression that would last two, three, four weeks. And he began to look and, fear, uh, and feel poorly. Don't you love it when people look at you and go, What's wrong? You don't look good. You getting enough sleep? You eating enough? I could never satisfy my mother that I was healthy, could I, honey? And it was like she was, and she made it almost an accusation, like it was my wife's fault. <laughs> there wasn't a day went by when she wouldn't say, hi, you look yellow. Those were her opening words to me for 30 years. But people around began to, began to sense that he was dragging. He was depleted physically, emotionally, spiritually. Something else was going on at that time. In 1863, the U.S. was in the midst of their civil war. Citizen morale was extremely low, and everyone knew someone who had been killed in battle. It was really hard, he said, to climb into the pulpit, look out at his congregation, and notice how many women were dressed in black. They were mourning either the death of their husband or one of their sons. And he took it upon himself week after week to climb into the pulpit and try to offer words of comfort and hope and inspiration when the war finally ended, so did his energy. He was completely and utterly finished. In December 1865, exhausted, physically, spiritually, emotionally, Brooks asked the church if he could make a pilgrimage to Palestine. And the board agreed to send him there for an extended period of time, number of months, and he hoped there he could renew his spirit. So it was on Christmas Eve, 1865, that he had come to the Holy Land with thousands of other pilgrims in order to find some peace. And he found himself gravitating towards Bethlehem. There were many that had come to see the little town 
as it was in those days. And he went along. But on that day, he didn't feel much like being with thousands of other people. And he found himself more and more slipping to the side, trying to escape the the rush, the noise. And finally, it was too much for him. He was tired of it all. And he asked someone for a horse. Didn't want to be accompanied, took the horse, and he simply set out across the desert, up over the hills of Bethlehem, until he got to a place that was away from the maddening crowd. He wanted to explore on his own, see things with his own eyes. And as the sun faded and the stars began to emerge, he sat on the hills, standing next to his horse, watching as darkness descended on the town of Bethlehem. And it was a clear night that night. And as darkness descended and the stars began to illuminate the sky, he stood quietly and just tried to take it all in, glorying in the fact that he could be alone and be in this spot, this spot where so much had happened, this spot that was so momentous for him as a Christian, this spot that for the world would bring about the hope and salvation of humankind. It's what it looks like today. A little different. Buildings have changed. But you can still sense the terrain, the little hill, and then the fields all around. As you recall the gospel stories of Christ's birth, he decided that he would go home and remember this moment. Because as he stood there over the hours, his soul did begin to sing again. There was a lightness that came over him as he contemplated what an incredible change the world had undergone since Jesus Christ had stepped onto the scene. And there was something within him that responded to the delight that God would care enough for human beings that he would do this great thing And Philip saw himself again as embraced and cared for and loved by a creator who had come to tell us that there was more than just this life to live. In his journal, he recorded the Bethlehem experience this way. Before dark, I rode out of town to a field where they say the shepherds saw the star. It's just a fenced piece of ground with a cave in it. Strangely enough, they put the shepherds somewhere in those fields as we rode through. The shepherds must have been there. And once or twice, I caught a glimpse of them keeping watch over their flocks. 
But when I went back down into Bethlehem, it was there that I began to sense something of the majesty of God. I was standing in the old church in Bethlehem, close to the spot where Jesus was born, and the whole church was having an Advent service because it was Christmas Eve. And hour after hour, the splendid hymns of praise were ringing through the church. And it seemed as if I could hear the voices that I know very well telling each other of the Savior's birth. I was transfixed. My soul was renewed that God would presence himself with us so that we could experience something beyond the ordinary of our lives. Although this was a great experience and very formative, he actually didn't frame any words to the experience. It simply lifted him, and he went back home. It was three years later, in 1868, that he wanted to have a new carol for the children's choir that was going to perform at Christmas. And as he sat in his study thinking about what kind of a carol it should be, he reflected on his ride into Bethlehem that night. He reflected of the beautiful time that he had spent up in the hills, just him and the horse, watching the sky darken and the stars begin to come out. And words began to effortlessly come into his mind, and he quickly began to jot them down. Oh, little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. It makes so much sense to put us in that moment, doesn't it? Bethlehem had no street lampposts. There's no outside lights. When darkness comes, the only light that you would see would be from the candles inside the buildings shining out dimly through the windows. So darkness is much more dark. And the presence of light is all the more awesome in the presence of darkness. Let me deviate for a moment. The ancient prophecy of Bethlehem interests us a whole lot. Why the town was to be so significant was spelled out by Micah hundreds of years before the birth of the Savior. And Matthew, of course, quotes Micah. However, it's not the same. There's something going on here. For you, O Bethlehem, Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for you shall come forth for me, one who's to be ruler in Israel, who's coming forth is from old, from the ancient of days. That's how Micah forecast 
that a descendant of David would come out of that little town and end up fulfilling the messianic role. Matthew, quoting Micah, says, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. What's happening here is a little bit of midrash, which is the way that Jewish preachers incorporated what they knew with what truth they were to say, and then within the context of Scripture, alter things in order to reflect the true meaning. In other words, they gave us as preachers 2,000 years later a blueprint of how we can preach legitimately and not mangle the Word of God. All Matthew is saying is, Oh yeah, Bethlehem Ephrata. You see, there were two Bethlehems. One is south, one is north. In fact, the northern one is not far from the little town of Nazareth. But that's not the Bethlehem. And so he just cuts to the chase and says, Bethlehem in the land of Judah. Rulers come out of clans in Israel. That's the way the hierarchy works. And so again, Matthew simply reads what Micah is saying, and then says to his people, don't forget, yes, it's true, rulers come out of the clans, but I want to focus on that because I am talking about a ruler who is going to be the Messiah. So he just shortens the journey between making the link between the clans, out of which the rulers come, the rulers, then out of which somebody important steps forward. Clans and rulers. Just one way to help people make the leap from what God is going to do in terms of bringing the Messiah. And Micah just reminds people that the Messiah is going to be coming out of the ancient of days, that he is from before history, always will be. Matthew. He wants to quote something totally different. He takes a verse that comes out of Samuel. Second Samuel says, You shall shepherd my people Israel, and you will be their rulers. Samuel's talking about how David is going to be different than Saul. Matthew now incorporates what is said about David, and he expands it even more and says this Messiah is going to be a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. But of course, ultimately, it's way bigger than that. Because the people of Israel will not just be the Jewish nation. Ultimately, it will be the tree where Gentile and Jew are grafted into the very kingdom of God. And this ruler will be that king. called Midrash. It's not a misquote. It's somebody looking at the Old Testament knowing that if he announces the passage, everybody there can look it up and see what it says. So he's commenting on it. Helping people to understand what is at the heart of it. Bringing out the meaning and application of a text. In effect, preaching the way we do today. 
For Christ is born of Mary and gathered all above, while mortals sleep, the angels keep their watch of wondering love. O morning stars together proclaim the holy birth, and praises sing to God the King, and peace to men on earth. You understand where this all comes from out of the soul of the man who's writing this. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. And so God imparts to human hearts the blessing of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. Philip Brooks over and over wanted the experience of the indwelling Christ. It wasn't enough to preach about Christ. He wanted to know Christ. It wasn't enough to tell people that there was a Savior. He wanted him to be his Savior. It wasn't enough to know that the world was under bondage and the only way to freedom was through what this ruler would accomplish. It was about what do I get out of the great accomplishment that started in Bethlehem and ends on a cross at Calvary. Oh wait, not ends, but begins the cycle of new life as resurrection breathes into human beings destined to die, a destiny that is spectacularly forever. When I receive him, Christ enters in. Upon completion of the song, Brooks gave the copy to Lewis H. Redner, a Sunday school superintendent who was also a composer. Redner was a gifted musician and religious educator, and he struggled with developing just the right melody. Several stops and starts, and it was the evening before the actual performance of the Christmas program that the, the tune finally came to him. And he wrote it down. It was as if it was being dictated, he said later, by angels as all of a sudden smoothly. Came into his head. And he began to write down the notes. Other churches began using it. Worshippers were enamored with the words and tunes, and over the following six years, O Little Town of Bethlehem was the most popular Christmas carol in Philadelphia. He was elected the Bishop of Boston in 1891. Two years after his election, he died, very suddenly at age 57. He wrote many hymns, even Easter hymns and some other Christmas hymns. None have survived the passage of time. Only this one, O Little Town of Bethlehem. O Holy Child of Bethlehem, 
Descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell. Oh. Oh. Come to me. Please, Lord, come to me. Abide with me. Our Lord Emmanuel, God with us. God with me. Because I need him. The word destiny means what happens to somebody or what will happen to them in the future, especially things that cannot change or be avoided. (laughs) Christ knew from the beginning that his destiny was to come to earth, take on human flesh, become the God-man that ultimately would end up on a cross dying for your sin. And knowing that was his mission, he put his face to achieving and accomplishing that mission for you. You personally. Because you have no chance. You have no hope outside of what Jesus Christ did for you. If you want to risk it all and stand before God one day and explain why God should let you into his heaven based on your goodness... You're a way, way braver, more courageous person than I will ever be. Because I got no leg to stand on. Not on my own. Jesus was the Christ destined to be the Savior of the world. What's your destiny? How's it all going to end for you? Because... It's going to end for you, for me. One of two possible things is going to happen. You're going to be a forgiven child of God whose sins are forgiven and whose future is a resurrected eternity with Jesus Christ and a remade earth. (laughs) Heaven. Or... You're going to be an unforgiven, eternal soul lost forever to the judgment of hell and death. There are no third choices. There's not an agnostic withdrawal clause. I don't like either of those two options. God has already stated that this is the way it's going to be. This is the destiny of every human being. One or the other. And if you this morning are still in category two, you still have an opportunity to be a part of the eternal kingdom of God because Jesus Christ died for your sin. What's your destiny? Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, I want to thank you this morning for Philip Brooks, 
who understood what it was like to have a personal relationship with God, and yet at times he felt lonely. And in order to deal with this loneliness of soul that he felt from time to time, he made this journey back to your hometown. (laughs) And he experienced what it was like in the silence and the majesty of that environment to sense that the child of Bethlehem who became the Savior on the cross was indeed the answer to the longing of his own soul and to all the problems of humankind. Father, thank you for Philip's magnificent song. Thank you for the way that we've remembered and sung it through the years. But thank you also that it inspires us to remember destiny both Jesus' destiny to be the Savior of the world, who is now Lord of Lords, King of Kings, waiting for the time when he will bring earth history to a close and there will be an accounting. And the destiny of human beings, men and women, will come into fruition, one or the other, with God or without heaven or hell. Father, thank you again for what you did for us. Thank you for establishing a fixed point in my destiny. Thank you that is the fact that Jesus is my Savior. I have the confidence to live my life each day knowing how it all turns out, knowing that God will accept me forever forgiving me for all my sin, forever making me his child. And to anybody here this morning who wants to experience that as well, it's as simple as bowing your head and saying, Lord Jesus, you died for me. I accept that. I want you to be my Savior and my Lord. And with that begins a new life. Share it with a friend. Share it with one of us as pastors in the church. We can help you as you continue your journey. Father, bless us as we continue this beautiful Christmas time. In Jesus' name, amen.